Welcome back from spring break, guys. I'll be curious to kind of hear what you guys thought about taking a week off. Sometimes my overall guess is that the morning women actually would rather we didn't take a week off. But then the, the PM ladies did want a week off. I don't know. I don't know what to make of that. So I guess either you're welcome or I'm sorry. I don't know which one I mean. Um, so welcome back. We're going to do a, a live teaching this week. But what I'm really excited about, guys, is we're going to end with some worship. Um, Lauren has joined us for the morning. morning. If you haven't met her, then I'm excited for you guys to be led by her in this this smaller setting. Um, so that's why I tried to wrangle you out of connection or connection groups, small groups a little bit quicker. Um, so let's just jump in, guys. Open up your Bibles. Exodus 11 and most of 12. Here's part of why I wanted to teach today. I am I love the Bible study setting because you guys have been in the text all week. And like we've heard from Jen, it allows the teaching time to have some flexibility or maybe to even go even deeper because you guys already have been in the text. That's where it's different than, than the Sunday morning setting. Um, Lauren, will you close the doors for me, please? Thank you. Um, and so this week... Um, is maybe a little bit more of a familiar passage. It has so much depth to it, but it is more familiar. Like if we know a story about this book, the Bible, it is about chapter 12. It's about the Passover. And so because of that, and because you guys were reading and studying and and looking deep into the text, we have some room to go even deeper. But it's not just about going deeper. It's also about being able to take our time and really letting it hit our heart. And um, I just felt like the Lord had... Um, just kind of laid it on my heart to, to pull out how these chapters might help us learn how to suffer well. So that's where we're going, and that's where, where we are eventually going to get as we get into the text this week. Um, but it is a, it's a beautiful bit of scripture, beautiful insights, abilities to make some connections. So, so what did we read? So let me just read a couple verses to, to familiarize us with the intensity of this part of the story. So in 11, 3 through 6, we read that the Lord gave the people favor with the Egyptians. In addition, Moses himself was very highly regarded in the land of Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says, about midnight, I will go throughout Egypt and every firstborn male in the land of Egypt will die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the firstborn of the servant girl who is at the grindstones, as well as every firstborn of the livestock. Then there will be a great cry of anguish through all the land of Egypt, such as never was before or ever will be again. Again, let's not lose this because of familiarity. This is a terrifying scene, guys. I mean, do you realize he's not just saying like the baby firstborn, but one household could lose a grandpa and the dad and the oldest son, right? And it's at midnight. Midnight is terrifying. It's pitch dark. Think of what those hours before midnight felt like. Even if you had put blood on your doorpost, What did it feel like in those hours leading up to that? Think of the tension, think of the fear, and think of the sound. 
Think of the sounds that were heard throughout that evening of the, the lamb making the noises, the terrified lambs making the noises. Think of the shrieks. And then when midnight hit, think of what it would have been like to hear throughout all of the area a cry of anguish like had never been heard before or would ever be heard again. This is an intense scene. And we, we saw at the beginning of our week of study that this, these two chapters are kind of uh, built in a unique way. We learned about that uh, kind of that, was it chiasm? Or how, how was that word? Chiasmus? I don't know, you're all mumbling, but it's great. <laughs> I should have just mumbled the word because I know I didn't say it right. But we, we saw that Moses takes tons of time to, to build up the details of this 10th plague, spends excessive time on the Passover. And what we learned is that not just what happened that night, but that the people were told to repeat this every single year, both the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. So in 12:14, we read, this day is to be a memorial for you, and you must celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. You are to celebrate it throughout your generations as a permanent statue. So guys, every single year, they were to do this. First month, 10th day of that month, they were to repeat the scene. This became their rhythm. They were commanded to memorialize the Passover as a statue forever. But you get the difference here. They weren't just supposed to recall what happened. Like, oh, hey, you remember that? They were to participate in it as if like reenacting it. And so we should stop as good students of the Bible and say, why? Right? We shouldn't just brush past that, but let's, let's be real and let's be honest here and say, why would you want to relive such a traumatic night? Why would you want to relive something that was so bloody and so gory and so scary? Actually, isn't it a little bit sadistic? a little bit traumatizing to the people of God. And so that's the question I want us to ask as we move through the text today. Because I think that we can maybe better understand that question of why? Why would we want to relive something so scary and dark and bloody? Well, I wonder if we saw the Passover as a liturgy and if that would help us answer that question. Liturgy. So how many of you grew up in churches that did liturgies? Yeah, a handful of you, okay? So lots of times we just think of it as associated with like what they call high church. So maybe like an Anglican church or a Catholic church. They practice liturgies. A lot of us might not actually know what that means. I looked it up. Liturgy is a repeated work or a repeated order which communicates theological truths. Don't we sound so academic this morning? Okay, a liturgy, a repeated work, or a repeated order, which communicates theological truths. They are rhythms that reveal and reinforce one's values and pillars. Okay, little interaction time, guys. Got a whiteboard today. This will be fun. So, Veritas. Do we practice liturgy? I hear a yes. Do I get a second yes? Do I get a no? Anyone want to oppose them? Who thinks we're way too hipster for liturgy? Okay. Sort of. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. Do we practice liturgy? The answer is kind of yeah. 
because we have an order of service. So I thought this would be funny. Ladies, what is our order of service at Veritas? Let's see. You have to yell it out. I'm not going to just do this. What is our normal? Okay, I'm going to say praise music. We can, we can break this down. Someone tell me another element and tell me where to put it. Meet, meet, yes, exact. Meet and greet. Where am I putting this? Before or after? What? Okay. Oh, again? Okay. All of a sudden, when I get up here, I can't spell words. Greet. Greet. Great. <laughs> meet and greet. What else do we do? More praise? Wait, where's prayer? What, what else? Announcement? That doesn't sound very liturgical. Is that later? Come on, guys. What's our liturgy? Announcements? Oh, we're not all agreeing. This is what's supposed to happen. What else? What else do we do? Next? Okay. Then what do we do? We do some more prayer? Good. Communion? Okay, good. And then some worship? Well, <laughs> I know. <laughs> Is there anything after that? Ooh, strong word, benediction. Okay. Blessing. Did you just steal that? There we go. Oh, goodness. Okay, so there's more baptism. Oh, you want it down here? Okay. Okay. Oh, there's a oh, response. Okay. You want that here? Yeah, you're just looking on this side, Christy. Okay. So maybe... We at this hipster church do have a liturgy. This is, in a, in a loose definition, this is our liturgy in the sense that it is our order of service. It is our rhythm. It is our repeated pattern that we do. And I would hope that what we would find is that this all has a purpose. That it's not us just being lazy and saying, well, we can't recreate a service every single week, but that each step matters but maybe even that the flow of it matters, okay? So when I was studying the Passover and was looking at how much was emphasized that this was repeated year after year and that the people of God were told to participate in it, I saw it as a liturgy. This is our church's liturgy. So I did some research and I started learning and I started looking a lot in the church history and I found that there were some, um, some common, some, some shared beliefs or ways to summarize what historically churches have done for their liturgy, that this is their, the ancient like, order of events, okay? So I'm just going to put that up there for now. Okay, but in case that I'm boring you or you don't see where we're going with this, guys, I've, I also read some really helpful illustrations, found some helpful illustrations for a liturgy. Think of it as the prongs on a diamond ring. 
okay, the little things that uphold the diamond ring. That is the liturgy. That is the structure that is upholding the diamond, the beautiful diamond. If Passover is the prongs, then what we are asking today is what beauty is the liturgy of the Passover displaying? Or maybe a second illustration. What if we thought of liturgy as like a pipe or a, a conduit that delivers life-giving water? Our question then is what does the liturgy of the Passover deliver? And I think if we ask those questions, guys, our answer will be what it delivers and what it displays is God's big story. Or more specifically, God's story of redemption. Now, this is where I fear that we can kind of nod off because it's familiar. But actually, if that's our problem in this room, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that we have done good study and feel familiar with the Passover. You guys probably have connected the dots that the Passover points to the cross, that Jesus is the Lamb of God, as we read in the book of John, and that's good. So for today, we're going to zoom in a little bit more, and we're going to go to a whole other level of looking for the details. What does the liturgy of Passover reveal about God's big story? So we're not just thinking about the Passover for that night, guys, but they were told to do this year after year. The Israelites, the people of God. Let's talk through this. What did this rhythm teach the Israelites? Well, first of all, what I think it taught them about God is that he is good. What did this rhythm, this yearly rhythm, teach the people about God? That he's good. And actually, guys, you should be like, whoa, that doesn't seem like the most obvious attribute of God. Right? We just, didn't we start with like, isn't this a graphic story? Isn't this gory? Isn't it bloody? Isn't it kind of traumatic? And yet, what if that was true? That what they were supposed to remember generation after generation is that God is good. God, who is coming and telling Pharaoh that he is going to kill all of the firstborns. How are we to see his goodness in here? Well, we have looked at this a couple weeks ago, guys. And this is all over this, this talk, guys. Just know that I've been informed by many other teachers and many other books, uh, and, and specific or recently uh, a sermon by, by Drew Stevenson. Guys, why we can say that the Israelites were to learn about the goodness of God is because it was his goodness that provoked his wrath against the Egyptians and against anyone who did not get covered in the blood of the Lamb. God's goodness provoked his wrath. How can that be? Well, guys, think of any good, loving father who is going to see an injustice, is going to be moved to act against that evil. What kind of God would he be if he did not respond to such evil? And the text was so clear how very, very hard-hearted Pharaoh was. Right? We even had a question about that. Of why, why is Moses now spurned to anger? because of the extreme hardness of heart of Pharaoh. And so we see that it's actually God's goodness that is going to provoke his wrath. 
But guys, here's a little thing that we need to know in our study of God. It does not mean that God is in conflict within himself. The good side of God and the wrathful side of God, they're not in torment with each other, in conflict with each other, because God is one. And it's not even that God is is acting injustice because of the external environment. No, God doesn't, it's not so much about God responding to something on outside as if it catches him on his heels. It's about who he is. He is good, and yet he is just. Two sides of the same coin. And so year after year, as the Israelites would go and they would prepare for their annual celebration of Passover, they would be learning and relearning that God, in this exodus, in this 10th plague, was showing his goodness as both his salvation and his judgment kind of intermingled as they occurred at the exact same time. As they would practice it, they would learn this about God, and it would be a time of adoration. Kind of like how the opening song on a Sunday morning draws us into praise. They would be drawn to glory and praise and to marvel at a God whose goodness is so vast and so strong that it moves him to act in justice and even in wrath. That's what they would learn. Next, what would this observance teach them about sin? They would learn that sin requires blood that sin would require a payment. So let's look at a couple of the observations we made this week. We saw that the lamb or the goat, the spotless lamb, would come into the family's home. Did you guys catch that? It would come into the home and it would be there for like three days. Why do we care about that? If you think about this, this whole thing was a corporate family thing. So the family is bringing this lamb into the home. And it becomes a pet, right? I mean, realistically, this goes from being just a purchase they make of livestock to coming into their home. And it could have become like a pet, what they would start to learn year after year as they remembered that and then as they participated in it is that the weight of the sin would be felt personally. It would be weightier. We read that they were told to put the lamb's blood on the wooden frames of their homes, showing that this sign of life, the blood, would deflect the agent of death. They learned that the blood was needed to appease God's wrath. And guys, wasn't this interesting? We learned this week that they learned, the Israelites, that they needed the blood as much as the Egyptians. We brought that up a couple weeks ago. That God's people didn't just get a pass. God was not just picking them as his favorites, although he would show them favor, but that their sin would need a covering, just like the evil Egyptians. And we were pulled into the gore and the blood of this as they, as families, slaughtered this lamb, slitting its throat, draining its blood, is we are to pull all of our senses into this to understand it. Think of the smell. Think of the sights of this. This was important for the, the families in that first Passover and every single year after it to understand 
that sin requires a payment, a covering. That a good and just God cannot just sweep sin under a rug. And so what were they learning? They were learning about confession. They were learning to address their sin with God, much like a corporate prayer from a stage on Sunday, calling the congregation into repentance. Next, what would this rhythm teach them about the extent of God's provision? I love this. We read that after they slaughtered the lamb, they would then prepare it with no bones broken. They would prepare the whole thing to be eaten. I've never put much thought into this before, guys. Why? Why did they then eat the lamb? What were they to learn from that? I think part of what they needed to learn is that the purity of that lamb needed to not just be on the outside as an external sign, but needed to become part of them. That they needed that purity. They needed the righteousness of that lamb, so to speak, to come into them. Not just an outer sign, but inward. Perhaps what that generation was supposed to learn is that the purity that God required is much deeper than just keeping the law externally. As they ate that Passover lamb, they would learn and then they would recall that God provides for the righteousness that he requires. Much like how we hear a good sermon on Sunday morning giving us the good news of God's provision for us. What else? What else did they learn? I think that the next question to be asked is how were they to respond? What response would this memorial evoke in them? And I thought about the bitter herbs and I thought about the unleavened bread. Okay, so think about them sitting and eating this meal, guys. Don't just picture it that night in Egypt. Picture it a year later and a year later and a year later and decades later and a century later. They're sitting down and think about the taste of that bitter herbs, and maybe even how it contrasted with the savory lamb that they're eating. The richness of that lamb, and then maybe how the bitter herbs would bite. Perhaps they were supposed to contrast that. We read this week that they were supposed to remember what? The bitterness of slavery. They were supposed to remember how painful, how horrible, how bitter slavery was. They were supposed to remember how ruthlessly sin and slavery treated them. Again, guys, pause and ask the obvious question. I don't want to remember that. Why is God telling his people to remember this, to relive it? I mean, I don't feel like that's a norm for us, right? Like, I'm not going to come up to my friend and be like, hey, you want to talk about the, the darkest night in your past, right? Like, do you want to just talk about that terrifying night that traumatized all your children? Do you want to talk about that? Like, no, like we get together and we talk about the good old times or whatever, right? We don't want to talk about slavery. So guys, when the scripture gives us an opportunity to slow down and ask a question, we can't be afraid to be honest and ask that question. I don't want to remember about a bitter time in my life, a time when I was treated ruthlessly. How can God be good if he's wanting me to have that bitter taste in my mouth again and again? 
But maybe there was a purpose in it. Maybe it was so that they would remember the reality of their past, that they would recall how life before God's freedom was miserable and ruthless. Because maybe they would find themselves, maybe, just maybe, they would find themselves as wanderers, as nomads, and they were going to be hungry, and they were going to be thirsty, and they were going to be afraid. And maybe they would be tempted to look over their shoulder at Egypt and be like, wasn't that bad? I mean, actually, it was better. At least we knew where our next meal was coming from. At least we had a home. But then maybe the calendar would turn. It would be time to celebrate the Passover again. And as a family, they circle around this unleavened bread and these bitter herbs, and they would remember the reality of sin, that it is ruthless, and that it brings misery. And so maybe then it's like a time of response for them. And they would remember to persevere. And maybe their response to God's good provision of this lamb is to say, I don't want to go back. Or, I want to go back, Lord, but I won't. I will keep moving forward with you. I will keep putting distance between me and the sin that so easily entangles. I will not let the black and the white get grayed between sin and obedience. I will call it what it is. It was ruthless. Life before you, life before freedom was ruthless. And this, life with you, even when it's hard, is still better. So often, I think that they would just get so confused about what the good life was and what it meant to live as God's children. But let's go back to our question yet again, guys. Why would they need to repeat, repeat this so much? Well, we read this week that it's because the liturgy told them about their past. It was remembering the exodus. It was remembering what God would do. But guys, it was also about their future. Because as this got passed through the ages, as the children would say, wait, why do we do this? Wait, why do we have to eat this? Why do we have to follow all these rules? As this got passed from generation to generation, guys, the future would come into sight. The future would start to be talked about and prophesied about. And what would happen is that the retelling of this Passover would drive their roots deep into the promises of God, into the covenant promises of God, into the nature of sin, into the provision of God's sacrifice. And what it would do is it would then evoke a response of faith and obedience in the people of God. But I want us to get a little bit more specific here, guys. How would this liturgy then inform their life? So if we're kind of playing off of this like Sunday morning liturgy, how does this go from being a response to God's provision to actually being something that would send them out? Once the, the week of Passover and the unleavened bread was over and they had that whole calendar year before it would come up again, would this bear any weight on their year as it would send them out? And this is what I want to focus on, guys. I think that in the liturgy of Passover, there was an opportunity for them to assess what they believed about suffering. You see why I say this, guys? 
think about this. The Passover was like the, the apex of their year. This was the, the climactic point in their story. But it revolved around suffering. It revolved around this dark, bloody, gory scene. Why would God ordain it to be like that? Why would the biggest day of their year and their biggest memory be about suffering, kind of orbiting around suffering? I just wonder if they were supposed to learn and relearn and relearn that in God's big story, more often than not, victory comes through suffering. What a paradox. But actually, it's a thread that we can pull all the way through the Bible. Don't we see it already in Genesis 3.15, when the gospel is first presented before Adam and Eve and the serpent, that victory was going to come, but the scene would be suffering. That the seed of the serpent would wound the seed of the woman, but it would be the seed's moment of victory. We talked about this a couple years ago. We did a whole like biblical theology study on these themes through the Bible. That in this upside down kingdom, guys, if we are Christians, that this is what we live in. That victory comes through suffering. That humiliate, that exaltation comes through humiliation. It's backwards. It's upside down. It's not what we hear around us, but perhaps that is part of what the Israelites were supposed to learn as they participated in this bloody, gory scene. Maybe they would think back on the story of God thus far. And I can't help but wonder then, guys, this is where it gets practical. If that pattern that they saw, that they recalled, would then change how they suffered. Would they learn to suffer better because they are seeing that their victory came through a night of suffering? If they would then play this out and how they lived in the wilderness if this would play out in how they handled the conquest of the promised land, as they fought their enemies, as they would later endure exile, would this truth that they got to be reminded of year in and year out, would it change how they faced suffering? Could it be that liturgy helps us suffer well? So the practices that we do, guys, now in 2022, the things that we do day in and day out, mundane, rainy Tuesdays. The things that we do on Tuesdays, literally and metaphorically, could it be that those are the things that will help us to suffer well when pain comes? So that when hardship comes, when loss comes, when anxiety comes, what if then it's almost more like an instinct to choose faith and obedience. An instinct, an inclination, evoking that response of faith. Guys, I see that in this room. I see that in so many of you. I've watched you suffer well because for years, day in and day out, you have had a liturgy in your life of 
adoration, of confession, of accepting God's provision, and then responding to it. I see in so many, many of you that liturgy is what has upheld the hope and the good news of the gospel. That's why some of you are still choosing faith when you are decades into a hard marriage. That's why some of you are still faithful when you're decades into migraines. That's why some of you are, have a divorce in your past, and yet you are still here, ready to accept God's provision and goodness and healing for you. You're suffering well because of the liturgies that you have built into your life. No one has done a better example of this in my life than my sister. There's four of us kids. And my older sister is the only one not in full-time ministry. And her example speaks the loudest to me. Because her whole life has been just a mundane Tuesday. Don't tell her I said that. She's just faithful. Just faithfully served. Enneagram 2 faithfully serves, hates the stage. I forced her up on it once. She hated me forever. Day in and day out, seeing holy moments in the most mundane. And a couple years ago, she had her fourth boy, beautiful fourth baby boy with no complications, no problem. I got to be there to help deliver him. And seven weeks in, he did not wake up. He died of SIDS. No explanation. Autopsy showed nothing. The week before, she had no idea what was around the next corner. So she couldn't do a crash course on how to be faithful in the face of suffering. But for months and years and even decades, she was building up a muscle of faithfulness. So that when tragedy struck, and it did, it was almost instinct. It was almost just her inclination to say, I may not understand, but God is good. I may not understand, but I know that I am part of a story where victory often comes through suffering. And of course it rattled her, and of course she grieved, and of course she suffered for a long time afterwards. But she found the ability to persevere and to cling to Jesus. Could it be that why they needed this kind of liturgy year after year, decade after decade, century after century, century after century, is because this Passover would reveal the heart of God to his children. Reminding them of their past, speaking into their current season, and hinting at their future. Because we know where this story goes, guys. After how many thousands of celebrated Passovers would happen when they would come to this one night as the Passover liturgy was played out before 12 Jewish disciples. And the greater exodus began. 
as Jesus broke the bread and passed the cup and kissed his betrayer. The order and the rhythm of the Passover came to life. As he hung on a cross on Passover and the sky darkened, taking those Jews back to that night of the 10th plague as the hour of midnight neared in ancient Egypt. And from that cross came a great cry of anguish like had never been heard before or ever would be again as he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the silence, of God, we hear the answer so that you and I could find our part in God's story. As the blood of that spotless firstborn lamb seeped into the wooden frame of that cross, and although it was still cloaked miles deep in obscurity, guys, the liturgy upheld the beauty of the gospel in that moment. And now we look back on it and we find our role in the story, guys. Where were we in this week's homework? We're not Pharaoh, but we're also not Moses. Do you guys see that? We're not the one who has to have this showdown with the enemy. And it's not even really that we're the Egyptians, guys. You know where I saw myself this week? I am the Egyptian woman who miraculously had my heart softened by the flex of God, by the power of God. And I just jumped in to what he was doing for his children. And I was welcomed in. I was grafted into the family of God so that now this liturgy informs my life. And so now I and you and all of us who are in Christ, we come and we see that the fulfillment of the story is that Jesus came as the glory of God, as the exact imprint, as a represent, representation of his glory to save the children that were condemned to death. Egyptian or Israelite, we were condemned to death. See, when God's justice met our morals, a judgment was made, and it didn't look good for us. So Jesus came to take away the sins of the world. So then what? So guys, what do we learn? We learn that as, as part of God's family, more like the Egyptians than actually the Israelites, we found that we have to find our covering in the blood of Jesus. We have to come under the blood of Jesus, almost like they were hiding underneath the blood. And we confess that we're sinners. We confess that we need his holiness, that we need the blood. We confess it one time when we come to Christ, and then we confess it over and over and over again. And we see Jesus now as God's ultimate provision for us. We see that our need, guys, is not just to outwardly keep the law of Christianity in 2022, but what God has given us is his son and put, him, put his spirit inside of us so that our righteousness comes from the inside out now. It's not about us just being rule-keeping women. 
but we need his holiness within us. And then our response to that is that we continue to repent of our sins. We continue to work hard to think rightly about sin and not forget how ruthless it was and to not wish for the time before Jesus or wish for the time when our sins were given us the good life. But we preach in community the true nature of sin, that it seals and it kills and it destroys, that it is a bitter taste, lest we forget it. And then we learn that to follow the way of Christ means to follow the way of suffering. We learn that to follow Christ means to pick up our cross, the very icon of suffering, and to follow him. Ladies, to be a Christian means that you identify with a suffering king. To cling to these upside-down truths about God's kingdom, our victory has come through suffering. Our victory came through Jesus' suffering. And we let that trickle down into our day-to-day life so that when we face sufferings of many kinds, our instinct is to cling to Jesus rather than to stiff arm it. Whether our suffering comes in swiftly and traumatically or whether we are a chronic sufferer, We find our hope that God has this ability to bring beauty out of the ashes, to redeem what was lost, to restore what has been broken. Guys, a good church liturgy, it embodies the gospel. It does not just preach it at one moment. And the Passover was the same. Do you see that? It embodied the gospel, the bigger story, inviting the children and the families to act it out, to participate in it, guys. So we would be amiss if we did not end this with some really specific applications. How can we, beyond Sundays, follow a liturgy that upholds the gospel story? What rhythms do we want to build into our lives that holds up the gospel story? What order in our lives, what repetition would move the gospel through us, allowing us to be like that pipe that brings the blessing of the gospel to the people around us? I think what I'm getting at here, guys, is that our salvation story, our night of Passover, if you will, it cannot just be a faint memory. It can't just be this one and done thing. It has to be something that we turn into a liturgy, something that we repeat, that we make into a rhythm. We recall the story of God. We tell people what God has done in our lives 40 years ago and what he did in our life last week, and we participate in it. Guys, what are ways that we can really do this? So think about this just through the week. So what if we built in these things? These are just for my own week that I tried to come up with. What if in the morning, every single morning, what I did, this is just nice mundane liturgy, before I got out of bed, what if I said Psalm 23 to myself? Right? I'm not talking like big hitter crazy stuff. I'm just talking some smaller things. We recall the truths of Psalm 23. Or maybe it's the Lord's Prayer. Before your feet hit the floor. What about at noon? 
What about as you're making lunch or whatever you do at noon? What if that was the time that you put on worship music? Good worship music. Show, I mean, worship music. Music is liturgy, right? It's this easy way for us to remember the promises of God. Okay, what about in the evening? What about when you're doing evening dishes or whatever, whatever your evening routine is? What if that became this, this time of cleaning house? We had that question about leaven and, and the uh, cleaning house metaphor. What about if you're picking up your house or your apartment in the evening? That became a time, a cue for you to confess sin to God. And if there's a sin that you're not gaining ground on, then you pause cleaving your literal house and you text a friend and you pull in the troops for help and you confess that sin to them. But then there's also things we could do on a weekly basis. Maybe your weekends can have this extended time in the word or this ex extended time in worship. Maybe there's seasonal liturgies. For me, it's like every December, I read the Narnia series. Maybe it could be something like that for you. There's so many opportunities for us to become women who uphold the beauty of the gospel through our regular patterns, big and small. Guys, what did we, what did we see as we stood at the Passover scene? We saw the cross, right? It's like we're standing here at the Exodus and we can see the story of the cross and what a joy it is to be on this side of it. But then I think here we are post-crucifixion and resurrection and what do we see? We see Revelation 5. If you finished your homework, you got there. What was in Revelation 5? Here we are in 2022 and we're looking out ahead and what we read in Revelation 5 is that we will behold one like a slaughtered lamb, ruling. Our suffering king, did it say seven horns, showing that even as a slaughtered lamb, he will reign in perfect power. That is what we're moving toward, is worshiping, adoring, celebrating our king, who was the slaughtered lamb as we participate in our story, which is God's big story, which is our gospel story. Let's pray. Father, I pray for the sufferer in this room. I pray that they would find healing and hope. Lord, I pray for the sinner in this room that they would know that they're a saint and that they have the power to rule over their sin because of your blood and because of your provision for us through Jesus. Thank you so much for the Passover. Thank you so much for calling us to be a people who remember what you have done what you will do. Amen.